Welcome. You're listening to The Sanctuary Podcast with Pastor Tullian Chavidjan. If you'd like to learn more about The Sanctuary, visit our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. I've mentioned week after week in this series that psalm after psalm is a maskless expression to God about the way life actually feels. There's nothing fake about the psalms. There's nothing even idealistic about the psalms. They're real. They're realistic. They don't pretend that life is better than it is or that things are better than they are. Psalm after psalm after psalm teach us to ask God hard questions, to thank him, to argue with him, to plead with him, to praise him, and to ultimately trust him even when we don't understand what he's doing. The psalms give us permission to do that. I love how in this psalm, even in verse 9 and 10, um, David is saying, he's, it's almost like he's bargaining with God. He's, he's arguing with God. He's saying, you, you got to get me out of this mess because how am I going to praise you if I'm dead? Make me alive so that I can praise you. He's, he's emoting. He's expressing the way that he feels. I love how the psalms give us permission to feel what we're feeling without apology and to express those emotions toward God. If we're angry with them, we say it. If we're frustrated with them, we say it. If we're happy with them, we say it. If we're afraid, we say it. All of those things, God gives us permission because they're here. As you make your way through the Psalms, there are almost every emotion that you can experience you find in the Psalms. You find joy, fear, frustration, gratefulness, grief, anger, wonderment, desperation, depression, love, longing. You find all of those emotions, all of the things that we feel, all of the things that we experience, we find here. They give us permission to feel these things. They give us, as I said, the okay to, to feel what we're feeling without apology and to express all of those emotions Godward. And as a result of doing that, they keep us, and this is one of the great gifts of the psalm, they, they keep us emotionally connected to God through all of life's ups and downs and twists and turns and good times and bad times. These are, these are prayers. These are songs. They are, they are written by a variety, a variety of different people. David wrote most of them, but a variety of different people. And they are prayers and they are songs that are expressed to God. So in that sense, they can become our prayers. They can become our songs. They can be the words that we can't find. And yet God gives them to us when we experience the ups and downs of life. And the Psalms in that regard keep us emotionally connected to God through good times and bad times. Well, as I mentioned, Psalm 30 is a, is a thanksgiving psalm. And it tells us at the top who wrote the psalm, a psalm of David. I mentioned a few weeks ago, that is what Bible scholars call a superscription. Something at the top of a psalm that explains who wrote it. And some psalms have them and some psalms don't. This psalm happens to have them. A psalm of David. So we know that he wrote this psalm. And in this psalm, King David is reflecting on a season in his life when he wandered from God and how God remained faithful to him. He's reflecting, he's remembering a season in his life when he wandered from God, when he wandered off the reservation and God remained faithful to him. That even in the face of his wandering and his badness and his faithlessness, God remained faithful to him. Now we don't know the specifics regarding the season in life that 
David's reflecting on here. But verse 6 indicates that he had started to think he didn't need God. Verse 6 really gives us the most context for why David was experiencing what he was experiencing. He says, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. It's a, it's a confession of pride, a confession of ego, a confession of being proud and thinking that you're stronger than you are, a confession of self-sufficiency. Um, David was prosperous. This, he wrote this at the time when he was already king. So he was king of the most powerful nation in the world at that time. He was prosperous. He was powerful. He was successful. He was influential. He was wealthy. He was handsome, according to what the Bible says in other places. He was gifted, remarkably gifted. He was kind of a renaissance man. I mean, he was a king. He was a war hero. He was a, he was a poet. He was a musician. I mean, he really was, in that regard, a renaissance man. He, he had every reason in the world to be cocky, and he was. That's what he's confessing to in verse 6. He had every reason in the world to think that he had outgrown his need for God. Every reason in the world. I'm good now. I've got it. I'm strong. I'm capable. I'm the man. I don't need you as much as I did before. Um, and that's exactly what he thought. What David is expressing in this psalm is interestingly what his son Solomon wrote years later in Proverbs 16, verse 18, where his son Solomon, as king, many years later wrote, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Solomon had his own crashes and burns. He had his own falls. But part of me can't help but wonder if maybe he was also reflecting on his dad's life. He was reflecting on those seasons in his father's life. We looked at another one last week where David, feeling powerful and entitled, seduced a woman who was not his wife, got her pregnant, and then subsequently had her husband killed to cover up for his sin. So part of me wonders if maybe Solomon, in writing this many years later, was not only reflecting on his own life and his own experiences, but maybe on his father's life and his father's experiences. I think we get into trouble when we think that what, David, what happened to David is unique. Because he was in the position that he was in, because he had all the power and the money and the influence and the gifts that he had and the talents that he had, and maybe we don't have any of that stuff, or we don't have much of that stuff. We certainly don't have as much of that stuff as David did. We tend to think that what happened to David is, is uh, unique, but it's not. It happens to all of us. It happens to all of us all the time. You don't have to be rich or powerful or attractive or charismatic or successful or influential or smart to think that you don't need God or to think that you're self-sufficient. Remember the quote I gave you a few weeks ago from Gerhard Ferdy where he said so aptly and so succinctly, arrogance always attends the slightest success. 
Arrogance always attends the slightest success. It's amazing to me when I reflect on that sentence, when I reflect on that quote, and I think on my own life about those moments where pride and arrogance seem to sneak in through the back door in a moment's notice. It's embarrassing to admit, but I've admitted this stuff to you guys before. I could feel that way about a sermon if I think it really went well. Uh, now, I am by far my harshest critic. I, I, I critique Stacy has to talk me off a ledge on almost a weekly basis and say, no, God was at work. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I blew it. I should have said this, and I didn't say that, and blah, 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 blah. But there are those proudful moments where I was like, you really nailed it today, buddy. You crushed it. I mean, if the church is in packed 10 services deep next week, I'll be shocked because word's going to get out far and wide. Now, I don't go that far, uh, at least that I'm aware of. It probably goes that deep in my heart. But, um, but seriously, it's embarrassing. Think about the things that we accomplish or the, um, the things that we have. I quoted Barry Switzer a number a few weeks ago where he said, a lot of people are born on third base and think they hit a triple. I think that's true for a lot of us. Um, you don't have to be rich or powerful or beautiful or successful or winsome or wise in order to think that you don't need God in order to start feeling self-sufficient. I mean, I love to believe that I'm better than I am, stronger than I am, more capable than I am, more important than I am, more significant than I am. I mean, the higher my view is of myself, the more valuable I feel. That just, that comes natural to me. No one had to teach me that. That's in here. It's in my heart. It's an expression of what Jeremiah said the human heart is. It's, it's deceitful. It's sick. And almost everything in this world, and sadly almost everything in the church, encourages you to put your faith in you. To put your faith in you. Self-sufficiency, independence, and autonomy are celebrated and supremely valued in our culture. To be deficient and to be dependent are cardinal sins in this world. I'm constantly being told that I have what it takes to meet life's greatest challenges and win life's greatest battles. Constantly, wherever I look. I turn on the TV, it's there. I listen to songs, it's there. I read books, it's there. I have conversations, it's there. Trust in myself, believe in myself. If I have faith in myself, anything is possible. And we hear that stuff all the time. If it's not explicitly stated, it's implied in almost everything out there. I was doing some research yesterday to find some sentences on this nonsense, and I found plenty. Here are just a couple of examples. If you're going to put your trust in one person, let it be yourself. I've tried that. It doesn't work. Believe in yourself, and you will be unstoppable. I've thought that also in the gym. doesn't work. No one can take better care of me than I can. The subtitle of a book that I saw about two years ago, which makes 
no sense to me at all. In fact, I'm bringing it to your attention just to point out the nonsensical nature of this stuff. This was the subtitle. I don't remember what the title was. This is the subtitle. Believe in yourself, and the universe will be forced to believe in you. Now, that's deep. Profound. I don't even know what it means. And I'm quite sure that the person who wrote it doesn't know what it means either. But it sounds smart, and it sounds empowering. Um... All of this autonomy, believe in yourself stuff may sound empowering at first, but it's ultimately enslaving. It makes life heavier. It doesn't make life easier and lighter. It makes life heavier. I mean, the fact that I mentioned a few minutes ago I'm being constantly told that I have what it takes to meet life's greatest challenges and win life's greatest battles, I know that's not true. I've, I've, I've been in those battles. I've, I've stared those challenges in the face, and I've fallen and I've failed. God has been gracious to me to show me my limitations, my weakness, my ultimate dependence on him. It's not, it doesn't lighten the load for me to think that I'm capable of climbing the highest mountain. It doesn't. Um, I mean, believing in ourselves assumes that we have the internal power to get things right and to secure the things that we need most. That's what believing in yourself assumes, that we have the internal power to get things right and to secure for ourselves those things we need most. But we all know the truth. We don't have that kind of power. I mean, when we feel disappointed with life, when we can't overcome our bad habits for more than a week, when we are paralyzed by the guilt of failing to be the father that we needed to be, when we want to be loved but we're still single, when we hit midlife and, and realize that we aren't where we thought we would be, when you can't seem to get over the fact that he left you, does faith in your ability help you in those moments? Those are the moments that expose us, that expose all of this nonsense that we're strong, capable. These are the, those are the moments in life that show us just how dependent we are. I mean, what happens when no amount of positive thinking can overcome the regret you feel deep down? Have you ever tried to strong-arm yourself out of sadness? Have you ever tried to talk yourself out of your insecurities? Or will yourself out of loneliness or muscle your way out of feeling rejected? I mean, how does that stuff work? It doesn't. Well, David discovered the bankruptcy of thinking he didn't need God. And that's what he's reflecting on in this psalm. I thought I, was, I thought I was all that. I was the man. I was the boss. But what God exposed was the fact that he wasn't. Notice the words and phrases that he uses in this psalm to describe where all of his self-sufficiency led him. Verse 2, I cried to you for help, clearly in a desperate situation. Recognizing his dependence, he was low and he needed God. Verse 3, you brought my soul up from Sheol, which is another word for the place of death. 
death. Verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night. He's expressing the fact that this was a hard, heavy, sad season. That he was weeping, that things were hard. Verse 7, you hid your face. I was dismayed. Dismayed, the feeling of being dismayed. Verse 8, to the Lord I plead for mercy. Mercy. My mom made this distinction for me when I was a kid between mercy, justice, and grace. She said grace is getting what you don't deserve. Justice is getting what you do deserve. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. When he pleads to God for mercy, he's saying, don't give me what I deserve. I know what I deserve. Don't give me what I deserve. Please don't give me what I deserve. Be merciful to me. Verse 11, he uses the word mourning, sackcloth, which if you don't know is a very rough fabric that people in mourning would wear back then. Someone would die or something tragic would happen, they would wear sackcloth and put ashes on them and, and that sort of rough fabric was, was rubbing up against the skin to remind them that this was a hard, painful season in life. Well, God did with David, clearly, what he, did, what he does with us when we think we don't need him. The same thing that God did with David, God does with us when we think we don't need him, when we think we can live without him. What does God do? What does God do when we think we can live without him, when we think we don't need him? He gets out of our way and lets us try. I love the parable of the prodigal son, one of my favorite stories in the Bible because I can relate so well to it on, on a variety of levels. Uh... But I always tell parents who, are, who have, you know, rebellious kids or, or kids who are running, um, regardless of their age, I said, there's one thing to notice in that parable. There's a bunch of things to notice, but one thing in particular to notice regarding how to treat someone who wants to run away. Notice that the father in that parable didn't wrap his arms around his son as he was leaving, but as he was coming home. In other words, he let him go. God did with David, apparently, what he does with us every time we think we can live without him. That's why when I see people in my life who are sort of distant from God or distancing themselves from God, rather than panic, I just pray and I get out of the way. Um, my mom, who will be here in a couple weeks, you guys got to come to that. It's going to be uh, real interesting. Uh, you got to come. Pure entertainment. Pure, unadulterated entertainment. Get your popcorn ready. It's going to be an event. Um, so, uh, but my mom, I was, you know, I've told you my story, how I dropped out of high school at 16 and got kicked out of my house at 16, middle of seven kids, and my mom, reflecting on that season in life as a mom, said the hardest thing she had to do was to get out of God's way. The hardest thing she had to do. Trusting that God loved her son more than she did, she knew she had to just get out of the way 
If I wanted to try to live life without God, then I needed to experience the consequences of those decisions in order to be sobered up in some way, shape, or form. She said she, at that time, she wished that she could handcuff herself to me to protect me. And yet the hardest thing she says she had to do was get out of the way. You see, he, God does the same thing with us. He gets out of our way, and he lets us try. And it never ends well. Never when we do that. The prodigal son ended up in the pigsty. Jonah ended up in the belly of a fish. Flight from God always leads to the pigsty. Always. When we distance ourselves from God, when we think we can do it without him, when we think we're strong enough and we can manage on our own, it always leads us to dark places that culminate in desperation. Always. Never ends well. Verse 7. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Where, where was he? Now, it's not as if God actually hid his face, but that's the way he felt. He distanced himself from God, and that's why God felt far away. He's way over here in the far country going, God, where are you? And he's going, I didn't move. I'm here. Remember the parable of the prodigal son that I just mentioned. Why, why would God let David go? Why would the father in that parable let his son go? Why would God let Jonah go? He could have stopped. He could have stopped all of these people from running. I mean, God could have easily stopped Jonah and said, I don't think so, buddy. I said over here. Okay? He could have easily done that. He's God. And the answer to that is not, we have free will. That's not the answer. Okay, God can overpower our free will anytime he wants, and he often does, thank God. Okay? Our free will doesn't limit God. All right? Don't think so highly of yourself or your free will. Um, that's not the reason. I mean, you know, God, could, the father in the, in the parable of the prodigal son could have said, no, I'm not giving you your money. Of course, I know what you're going to do with it. I'm not giving it to you. In one way, shape, or form, that would have kept him there because he would have had no resources to go where he wanted to go. With David, I mean, God could have just said, nope, not letting you wander. Well, why? Why, does, why did he let them go? Why does he let us go? For the same reason that God lets us try to live without him, he, try, he let them try to live without him also. Because we have to experience the consequences of our own decisions before we will stop trusting ourselves and start trusting God. We just do. Consequences are great teachers. Great teachers. Sometimes we have to try living without God to realize how much we need him. I used to pray that God would protect my kids from making all the same mistakes I've made all the time. God, please protect them, especially when they were young. God, please protect them from making all the same mistakes that I made. Please guard their hearts, protect them, guide them, direct them. 
Do not let them wander the way that I wandered. And while I still pray God's protection over my kids, I now pray that he would do whatever it takes to win their hearts, even if that means allowing them to crash and burn. That's not easy to pray. And yet that is typically the way that any and all of us learn. I mean, I hate that we have to wander away and get lost and screw up before we can see our need for God and his grace. But that's the way it almost always happens, doesn't it? I mean, man, the times when I have felt closest to God have been those times where I've been flat on my back with nowhere out but up. I was broken, desperate, and fully aware of my own weakness and insufficiency. And those moments when I have felt most distant from God are those moments where I felt like I didn't need him. I got this. I mean, I hate that we have to go through hard things, difficult things, painful things, that we have to screw up, get lost, wander away, experience pain before we see our need for God and his grace. But that's the way it almost always happens. God is committed to setting us free even if that means allowing us to crash and burn at the hand of our own choices. That's how committed he is to setting us free. Remember when we were looking at Jonah, maybe you don't because you weren't here uh, at that time, but we studied Jonah a while back, earlier part of this year, last fall, uh, which would have been, I guess, the middle part of last year, but you know what I mean, last fall. Um, And one of the things that I pointed out was that God came after Jonah. He came after him in a storm. He came after him with a fish. He came after Jonah. He let Jonah wander for a while, and then he came after Jonah. And I mentioned there that God came after Jonah not to angrily strip away his freedom, but to affectionately strip away his slavery to self so that he could be truly free. And he does the same for us. When God allows us to experience the consequences of our choices, sobering as they may be, when he allows that to happen, um, he's not being mean. He's not wrangling us in because he just likes good little boys and girls. He actually likes rascals and rebels. the only kind of people he saves. Um, But he doesn't do it for that reason. The reason he does it, the reason he allows us to experience the consequences of our actions and our choices is because he will spare no expense to set us free, even if that means allowing us to suffer the consequences of our own choices so that we can see just how much we need him. Um, I think we underestimate the way God uses our failures to set us free. Failure is such a bad word, and nobody likes it, and we certainly don't like the consequences of it. But there are some real God-soaked benefits that come out of failure. Failure in itself is not good, but God brings great good out of failure. And I think we underestimate the way God uses failure to set us free. One reason God lets you hit walls is so that His love and faithfulness will be proven to you again and again and again. I mean, I I know things about God's love now that I would have never known if I hadn't crashed and burned. 
That's just a fact. I'm not excusing it. I'm not uh, encouraging it. <laughs> I'm just stating a fact. It is true that as a result of crashing, burning, failing, falling down, there are things about God that I know now that I didn't know then. His, I talked about his unconditional love. I talked about his amazing grace. I talked about his outrageous mercy before I crashed and burned. But it, all of that stuff was proven in the furnace of my failure. All of it was proven. There are things about God that we just don't learn unless we're at the bottom. There's just, there are things about God we can't learn if we're always on the mountaintop. Um, I, think about the, the qualities that attract us to other people. Okay, think the qualities of a person that, that make them attractive to us. Uh, humility. We all like to be around somebody who's humble. Compassion. Empathy, wisdom, depth of feeling, understanding, patience with others. We like to be around those people. Those are the people that we're most attracted to. We admire those people. Um, we love that stuff. I mean, we, 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 just, we admire people who possess those traits. We, we want to be around them. And then think about the kinds of people we want to get away from, Okay. Uh, the people who are unattractive to us, people who are self-centered, people who are arrogant, constantly boasting, cocky, people who are judgmental, people who are impatient, and so on and so forth. We don't like being around those people. We don't, we don't like being near those people. We're not attracted to those people. Well, what, well, what produces something like judgmentalism? What is it that produces that stuff? We know we don't like being around it. We know that when we are judgmental, people don't like being around us. So what is it that produces that stuff? All of that unattractive stuff. Well, it comes from believing that you're better than other people. Quite simply. And failure tends to correct this. Okay? Think about that for a moment. We talk about how we want to be around, you know, when we talk about the people we admire, the people we're attracted to, the people we want in our lives, it's the people who are humble and compassionate, generous and understanding, who don't blink in the face of your worst confessions. We want to be around those people. And the people we don't want to be around... Judgmental people, self-righteous people, pharisaical people, people who always think they're right, people who always think they're better. Well, what produces that unattractive stuff? It's believing that we're better than we are. At least we're better than them. Well, failure has a tendency to correct that. Failure tends to remind you that you're not better than anyone else, that you're not strong, you're not self-sufficient. People who have failed, people who know their weaknesses, tend to be people of humility and empathy, understanding, wisdom. Failure has a way of softening our hard edges. I was talking to a good friend this week, uh, and I was reflecting on some situations that I, as a pastor in my previous life, 
was responsible to sort of govern and oversee. Hard situations. Situations involving adultery, specifically, are some of the ones that I think of first, because those are always the most painful as a pastor. You're dealing with kids, and you're dealing with a spouse who's feeling betrayed, and you're you're dealing with a, a rebellious spouse who's running, and all of that stuff, and and I can recall a handful of occasions in my former life as a pastor um, when uh, I handled those situations in a way that I would never handle them that way now. Never. In fact, I've gone back to a handful of those people and apologized. I don't think I was unnecessarily harsh, mean-spirited. I executed what I thought was the best thing to do with tears in my eyes, but still, it was just, it's not the way I would handle it now. Why? Because I've been through it. Now I know. I remember Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, telling a story many years ago about uh, a time when he had to go get a colonoscopy when he was 50, and uh, when he just turned 50, and he said it was a very painful uh, uh, disruptive experience, I think was the word he used. And he said, and the doctor was, had terrible bedside manner. I mean, he was just like, sit down, do this, dad, I bought, we know, whatever they tell you to do. Sit down, do this, bend over, I don't know what they tell you to do. I gotta get one. Uh, I haven't gotten one yet. I'm gonna be 50, so it's my turn next. I got next. Uh, so, um, so I don't know what to tell you to do, but he just had really bad bedside manner, this doctor. And it made the experience worse than it had to be. Well, the next year, he went back, and the doctor was very different. Soft, how are you today, Mr. Keller? Is everything okay? How's your family? It was very gentle, very tender, very kind. And he left the room, and Tim looked at his assistant and said, what happened to that guy? And she said, he got one six months ago. <laughs> I mean, what a great illustration to show how, you know, um, failure and pain and all of those things, coming, coming to the end of your own resources as a way of softening you, making you more tender, making you more gracious, making you more understanding. As a result of being so out there with my own story, I get confessions from people I will never meet this side of heaven, but they feel, for whatever reason, safe telling me their deepest, darkest secrets because I've told mine. I've said this before. I mean, success, my success has connected me to lots of people over the course of my life, but it's my failures that have connected me with people in a way that success never can. It's so, I could sit up here and reflect for hours on just the beautiful benefits that have come as a result of God's gracious work in my life post-fall. Just, I, moments matter to me now in a way they didn't. Conversations matter to me now in a way that they didn't before. I'm not always looking over the shoulder of the person I'm talking to to see if there's anybody else to talk to. I feel 
more present. I realize that things can go away real quick, and this is what we got, this moment, this person, this conversation. Well, what accomplished all of that stuff? Book sales? TV programs? Big conferences? No, that stuff produced the other guy. So what produced a different guy? Crashing and burning. David's realizing this. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. God said that about him. This, this guy knows. Yeah, he screws up and he blows it, but then he gets far away and he realizes, what have I done? He loves the things that God loves and he hates the things that God hates, even though he indulges in the things that God hates from time to time. You see, failure tends to remind you that you're not better than anyone else, and there's a lot of freedom in that. So David is thanking God for not giving up on him. David is thanking God for not walking away. He's thanking God for his grace. He's thanking God for his mercy. He's thanking God for his faithfulness. He's thanking God for his forgiveness. He's thanking God for setting him free from himself. That's what Psalm 30 is, David. Thanking God. It's a psalm of thanksgiving. He's thanking God for being faithful even when he was faithless. For being good even when he was bad. Well, I... I don't know about you, but I, I need a God who saves the faithless and weak, not the faithful and strong. Because if my strength is my hope, I'm screwed. Real freedom, I've said this before, but real freedom involves two confessions. I can't, God can. Real freedom involves those two confessions. I can't. God can. It is comforting to me to know that while my love for God will continue to fall short, God's love for me will never fall short. That even when we are faithless, he is faithful. The good news of Christianity rings true when we finally admit that we are weak. When we finally admit that we need help, that we fail, that we're broken and not as put together as we want people to think we are, that's when the rushing wind of God's amazing grace blows through and reminds us that no matter where you go, how far you run, or how stubborn your roaming may be, he will never, ever stop coming after you with gritty grace and forceful forgiveness, ever. He is God, and he's very different than we are. We give up. We walk away. Sometimes for good reasons, for necessary reasons. God has no reasons. He promises to never leave, to never forsake. My friend Nadia puts it like this. God simply keeps reaching down into the dirt of humanity and resurrecting us from the graves we dig for ourselves through our violence, our lies, our selfishness, our arrogance, our addictions. And God keeps loving us back to life over 
and over and over again. It's not a one-time deal. Over and over. And thankfully, it's not a one-time deal because our roaming isn't a one-time deal. Our roaming's not a one-time deal. It's a perpetual problem. Well, thankfully, God also has a perpetual problem (laughs) coming after us. So how does David end this psalm with these words? Oh, Lord, my God, I will give you thanks forever. Let's pray together. If you've enjoyed this message, be sure to subscribe to the Sanctuary Podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider giving to the work God is doing through the sanctuary. You can give on our website, thesanctuaryjupiter.com. Thanks for listening to the Sanctuary Podcast.